Welcome to New Hope Church's teaching series podcast. We hope you had a wonderful holiday season. The start of a new year means the start of a new teaching series. Over the next few months, we'll be reading through Luke's gospel. The following message was recorded at our in-person services on Sunday, January 2nd, 2022. Pastor John Rosensteel will be leading today's teaching, and our scripture reading is Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Good morning, everybody. Happy New Year. You can go ahead and be seated. And for all the folks joining us online, Happy New Year to you as well. We live in a world, I'm sure this is not a revelation, it's just an observation that is getting noisier and noisier and noisier. I did a little research for you. I'm sure you're grateful. But you're, you start to lose hearing. Your hearing is actually hurt and affected above 85 decibels. So anything above 85 decibels, medical science tells us, will deprive us of hearing and, and harm our hearing. So a couple noises around us. A alarm clock that woke some of you up this morning is 80 decibels. That's right short of hurting your hearing, just enough to get you out of bed. A leaf blower, does anybody else have neighbors that blow leaves at like 7 a.m.? Just the bane of my existence. A leaf blower is 105 decibels, so that will hurt your hearing. A car horn, 119 decibels. A rock concert, we haven't gone to many of those lately, 120 decibels. Now I did, uh, I did, I was thinking about my own life, what is noisy historically in my life, and children are noisy, amen? Like babies, if you, and I'm, I'm helping prep some of you, if you're gonna have babies, you're thinking about that, or you have them right now, I'm gonna give you a parent hack. And here's my parent hack, a baby's cry is 130 decibels. Right, that's not a surprise. That's louder than a rock concert, like right in front of you. And I learned as a parent, I just I started carrying earplugs in my pocket. Any other parents do this? It probably sounds really heartless, but like it just kept me calm. As soon as they started lo- losing their minds, I'd stick the earplugs in and just smile at them. And it's great. It's a parent hack. You're welcome. Uh, dog bark. We have two dogs. Uh, the dog bark is 120 decibels, and we have two of them. It's like stereo. Every time the FedEx guy comes, just just losing it. Our world is getting noisier and noisier and noisier. Even under the water. Uh, Scientists tell us that whales and dolphins are being disturbed by naval sonar, which is 235 decibels. Super loud. So it's just a noisy, noisy world. The truth is all of us are confronted with this. It's not only hurting our hearing, it's actually hurting our health. Loud noise affects your blood pressure, it affects your heart health. They've done studies on children that grow up near airports and the loud noise they, they uh, are constantly succumb to uh, cause greater stress, impairments in memory, attention level, uh, and reading skill are affected. But most notably, and this is what I wanna talk about today, noises in the noisy world that we live in affects our relationships with one another and most importantly with God. And we just got to be cognizant of that. We get interrupted on a daily basis uh, every three minutes. Some of us more, some of us less maybe. But on average, that's 320 times a day we're interrupted. And it's annoying when you're trying to do life with people and you're trying to do life with God and you're interrupted. This is one of the main ways we get interrupted. And the noises that come from this. I had a friend uh, a couple years ago, a leadership kind of guru friend that gave me some of the best advice. He said, John, 
If you want a good leadership hack, turn off all the notifications and the sounds and the vibrations on your phone. Everything, social media. So if you call me, including my family, you will not get me. My phone's always on silence. I'll check the voicemail and get back to you. But um, it's not going to come through. My daughter has found a hack around that and that she'll use the find my phone signal to kind of bust through all of my defenses and still, you know, find me. But that's a whole nother deal. Uh, we, we, we live constantly in this noisy world and it affects our health and it affects our relationship with one another. What I'm going to argue for today is the spiritual discipline of quiet stillness. We need to, as we enter a new year, begin to practice quiet stillness. And we're going to be introduced to a character today that was confronted, forced into uh, quiet stillness. We're launching a new series that will be a couple of months on Luke's gospel. We're calling it The Great Reversal. So if you know anything about the Bible, and if you don't, totally okay. There's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they are eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. And so we know, uh, we know that, that, that Matthew and John were disciples, so they were right there with Jesus. We know that Mark used Peter as an eyewitness. So where did Luke get his eyewitness accounts from? We're going to get into that as we kind of frame up the series in just a second. So who was this Luke? If we look at the New Testament, principally the Pauline letters, we get some clues. And we see in Colossians 4.4, Paul calling him Luke, the beloved physician. He's mentioned at the end of Philemon. And then at the end of 2 Timothy, Luke is the only one still with Paul in prison. So he's a companion of Paul. We see this in, in Acts, this mention of Lucius of Cyrene, which it's the same word in the Greek. So could this be the same Luke? Possibly. And Cyrene was an area in northern Africa. So we can put all this together to surmise that Luke was a doctor who was a close companion of Paul, possibly from North Africa. Luke wrote uh, Luke, the gospel, and the subsequent volume that is really one piece. It goes together called Acts of the Apostles. And he's writing both of them to this person, Theophilus, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, in the early church, they would have probably referred to it as Theophilus Book 1 and Theophilus Book 2, but we call it Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. So it's all together, one unit. And here's an interesting fact as I dove into it. If I were to ask you this Bible trivia question, who wrote most of the New Testament? You would probably, if you knew a little bit about the New Testament, answer Paul or John, and you would be incorrect. Uh, the answer is, I bet you can guess, Luke. Luke wrote 65 pages of the New Testament. Paul came in a close second at 62. Uh, so this is a really important voice that adds uh, pieces of scripture that the other gospel writers don't include, such as uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the lost son. If we didn't have Luke's voice and Luke's perspective, we would be deprived of a lot of how we understand Jesus. So we're entering into this couple month journey of really kind of saying, hey, let's, let's look at Jesus through the eyes of Luke. Luke clearly pulled stories and did his work to put together a portrait of Jesus. And we'll be arguing that there's this theme throughout Luke of the great reversal, that Luke is positioning Jesus in the way of Jesus and the kingdom of God as, uh, as, as Jesus coming in and turning everything and everyone upside down and inside out, that we will not to be able to engage with Jesus in Luke and not be changed. And so just know that as we enter in. So uh, Jess is going to come read our scripture. And I want to, as we start into the new year, I want to add something in what we do. We, read, we do the public reading of scripture every week. It's God's word. And believers all over the world do that and all throughout history. So every time we have a public reader, that person ends by saying, uh, this is the word of the Lord. You're familiar with that? And so the typical response, some of you might have grown up in church like that, the typical response is thanks be to God. 
And I want to start doing that because when the word's proclaimed, we want to be grateful. And it's also a way for you to participate in the service a little more. So let's practice a little bit because I don't want Jess to be the first time it happens for her to be disappointed in how you guys show up. All right, so Jess will finish reading and she'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you say, you. Uh, you can do better, but you'll have a chance in just a second. Luke 1, 1 through 17, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be a great sight of the Lord. He is never, he is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born." He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That was pretty good. You, you beat the first service, but you know, like a, like a, still like a B minus. You guys can get better. All right. So uh, if you have your Bibles or you have them on the phone, it's really good to have them out though, because we're going to be working our way through the first chapter. The way Luke uh, puts together the first chapter is we have these two characters, primary characters, Zachariah and Mary, the mother of Jesus. So we'll get to Mary next week, but they're broken up. So we're going to kind of tackle Zachariah today and come back and get Mary next week. So we'll be bouncing around a little bit. So good to have Luke 1 open in front of you. So the first couple of chapters of, uh, of First couple verses of Luke, Luke kind of frames up his, his gospel and what he's attempting to do. So I'm reading right from the first couple verses here. Here's some statements. He says that he's many have undertaken to compile the accounts of the life of Jesus. So Luke is going to be doing the same type of thing. 
So we know that Mark's gospel, when Luke is written, uh, prior, Luke wrote, you know, 45 to 60, 80, somewhere in that stretch, that Mark's gospel was already out there. Matthew's gospel was probably already out there. But we know the early Christians had lots of oral stories they passed on, lots of written creeds and songs. There's tons of stuff. And we have the four gospels, but we know there's a lot more stuff out there we don't have access to. So Luke does. Luke's right there in the first century. He's really interested. He's a physician, but he's wired like a historian. So he's gathering all this stuff, all these traditions, all the other gospels. He says he's, he's taking them from the first eyewitnesses. So Luke was not an eyewitness, but he knows the apostles. They're around, they're alive. He's friends with them. He's hanging out with all of them. And he's collecting, like a good historian, all the eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. He says, I'm carefully investigating everything from the beginning to give, he says, an orderly account of the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. This is not a novel. Luke is writing a, 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 like a scholarly biography of the life of Jesus. So it's something like this. So the gap between when Jesus died and rose again and Luke is writing is roughly the gap of when, between now and when Mother Teresa passed away. So say a Pulitzer Prize winning historian today was like, I'm gonna write the definitive biography of Mother Teresa. If they were to do that, like any good historian, they would collect everything that's already out there. They'd read every book on her, every book she wrote. They'd travel over to India. They'd, they'd talk to people who knew her and lived with her. And they'd, they'd spend probably several years doing that and then write this massive book on Mother Teresa. That's, that's, that's similar to what, what Luke is doing with Jesus. So Luke is writing to, he calls him the most excellent Theophilus. We don't know who Theophilus was. We can guess he was probably a God-fearing Gentile. And Luke says he was writing to Theophilus so he could be certain of the things he's been taught. So we can read into that a little bit and probably suggest that Theophilus was already a follower of Jesus, but probably a young follower of Jesus, probably a young disciple. So Luke's like, I'm going to put together this definitive account of the life of Jesus and then the life of the early church, you know, volume one, volume two, for my friend Theophilus as kind of a discipleship manual, but it's clearly not just meant for Theophilus. It's meant for the entire early church and it's meant for you and it's meant for me. So a historian always provides context. This is not a novel. This is not fiction. So Luke right away roots us in history. He says, in the days of Herod the Great, who ruled from 37 BC to roughly 4 AD, uh, Rome had appointed Herod to rule over Judea. And so it's during Herod's time, we're introduced to this first character, Zechariah. In, in the Greek, that name, or in the Hebrew, that name means Yahweh has remembered again. Zechariah was a priest. In the first century, there's about 18,000 priests. To be a priest, you had to come from a line of priests. You had to be the son of a priest. And you had to have a pure heart and a pure mind. Luke tells us that Zechariah was of the line of Aaron, and so was his wife. So if you were going to be of a line of priests, Aaron was the one you wanted to be part of. So these are exceptional humans chosen by God to serve the Lord in the temple. And he also adds on that Zechariah was righteous and blameless. So all that put together, a first century reader, we have to think like that. They would have been shocked at verse 7. Because verse 7 says that they were barren. They didn't have any children. And so why they would have been shocked is there was this idea in the first century Jewish world that if you were barren, you were sinful. You did something wrong. God was punishing you. Now, Luke is clear to tell us that's not the case. Jesus or the, the, the apostles never affirmed that. That's outrageous thinking. He tells us that Zechariah and, and Elizabeth were righteous and blameless. But that's the shock. So he sets the stage. So we have this character and his wife. So then we enter more deeply into the story. So there were 24 divisions of priests. 
of each division, they had orders, and they were made up of families, like four to nine families. So we're told, Luke tells us that Zechariah's division was up to serve in Jerusalem. And first century people would have known this, but we don't, and that's okay, I'm gonna tell you. They served five times, five weeks out of the year in Jerusalem as priests. So many priests lived outside Jerusalem, so they traveled to Jerusalem. That was their shift five times. They all had to show up for the three big uh, kind of festivals, uh, Passover weeks and tabernacle. But then they had two other weeks that they were assigned they had to come. The temple was this incredible building. It was the place where God's presence dwelt. It was the intersection between heaven and earth for the Jewish people. So to be a priest, they were experts in Jewish law, Jewish tradition, Jewish writings. They did the sacrifices. They up kept the building of things were falling apart. They're repairing it. They're caring for the animals. They're doing HR. They're doing financing. They're doing all these kind of things. To be a priest was really, really important. It would be, it would be uh, similar in, in our present context to take a, uh, a hospital CEO so a hospital CEO that has to oversee, they're responsible for everything that goes on in, in the hospital to make sure everything's above board and finances are going okay and HR is going okay and guard the hospital against malpractice, all of those things. And then let's just say that hospital CEO also had to daily do surgeries. Can you imagine? That would be the life of a priest. That was the life of Zechariah. Every day in the temple, people would come who lived in Jerusalem and outside if they were visiting and there would be two incense offerings in the morning and in the evening. So the incense offerings were, were held in the holy place. I think we have some pictures coming up of the holy place. And that's the room right beside the holy of holies where God's presence dwelt. And only once a year could the high priest go into the holy of holies. So the holy place for most priests, regular priests were the closest they would ever get to the presence of God. And yet not everybody got there. It was a lottery system. So throughout the life they would choose and like one priest would get to do the incense offering. Well, Zachariah had, had never done it because once you got it, your name was removed from the lottery. So you only did it once. So picture this, Zachariah is an old priest. He's like near retirement. If they did priest retirement, I don't know. He's near the end and his name gets chosen. Imagine, just feel the excitement that he's feeling. This is what he dreamed about his grandfather and his father told these stories and he's dreamed of this and he's probably feeling shame because his name's never been chosen and oh, it's today. And he studied his whole life for this. And it's probably evening prayers, because we're told later lots of people were gathered, um, or evening offerings. Lots of people were gathered for prayer. It happened at the same time. So it's game time. So five priests would, would be part of kind of the unit, but only Zachariah would go in. And the other priests would kind of prepare the holy place, prepare everything. And then Zachariah would walk in, and it's, it's him and the Lord. And he'd offer on behalf of the people this incense offering. I think the picture came up. Put that back up. You see the incense coming up from that little, that weird looking table there. That's the deal. So picture it. Zachariah walks in. There's the incense offering. And we're told, Luke tells us, that there's an angel waiting. And Zachariah's probably like, is this normal? Nobody ever talks about this? Is an angel part of this? It's not normal. And we're told the angel's to the right of the incense table, which that's a small detail, but that's the position of favor. So that's good news for Zachariah. The angel's not there to smite him down. It's a good news, but it's the angel's right there. And the angel tells him, Zachariah, your prayers have been answered. And what does this mean? We don't know exactly what Zachariah's prayer life was about, but we can guess two primary prayers for a child probably especially for a male, no offense, ladies, but Zechariah wanted a male to pass on the priestly line. And then for the redemption or the restoration of Israel, we know that prayer was prayed all the time. Well, which prayer is the angel talking about? 
Well, both, because <laughs> we're, we're told that a son is coming, this, this, this son John, and, and we're, 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 given, we're given words about John, who this person would, would be. And the, the son is named John, he'll bring joy to many, he'll be great in the sight of the Lord, filled with the Holy Spirit before birth. This whole section that Jess read, if you get into the, the Hebrew scriptures, it's drenched with references to prophets. Uh, Elijah, Samuel, Malachi, Isaiah are all referenced. So what the angel's saying is like, a boy is coming, your prayer has been answered, and that boy is going to be a prophet. That boy will prepare the way for the one everyone has been waiting for who will be the redemption of Israel, Jesus. So really good news. How did, how did Zechariah respond? Well, we're told initially when he sees the angel, he's scared, which is the typical response in the Hebrew scriptures and in Luke's writings. When people see angels, they're freaked out. And so Zechariah was. Uh, but how did Zechariah respond to this incredible news? Let's continue reading in verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So how did Zechariah respond? This blameless and righteous priest that had been praying for a child and praying for the redemption of Israel. And the angel finally shows up and says, yes, your prayer is answered. Well, Zechariah responds with doubt. He says, really? Have you noticed how old I am and how old my wife is? Like, is this really happening? And we don't want to blame Zechariah. I don't want any judgment on him. I would have probably responded the same way. And maybe you're a godlier person than me, but you probably would have responded the same way. There's a great uh, piece of poetry called Zacharias and Advent by a Filipino poet, Francisco Albano. And, and let me read it to you. I think it captures where my heart would, would be at. Imagine this man, a priest no less, not believing an angel. No life comes from barrenness, he told himself. Imagine this man of a temple of holiness, imprisoned in his scientific rational mind dumbfounded by old Elizabeth's grace-filled tummy. Isn't that an awesome phrase? <laughs> Facing sweet mystery of life flowing from impossibility. I don't know if angels get mad. I, I, maybe they get frustrated. I have no idea. I think Gabriel's frustrated. I think we can read that into the text because he, he doesn't tell us who he is right away. The second time he does, he's like, <clears throat> he gives his kind of his business card. He's like, uh, I'm Gabriel. Like, I'm standing in the presence of God. I'm telling you good news from God. What's your deal? That's kind of how I read into what Gabriel is saying. And then he says, because of your lack of belief, you are now unable to speak until that day comes, until John is born. And I think also, I'm going to argue, and I'm not alone in this, that not only did Gabriel deprive Zechariah of the ability to speak, but also the ability to hear. Later in the story, we're told that people are communicating with Zachariah, to Zechariah with hand signs. So I think it's likely that Gabriel deprived Zechariah of the ability to speak and to heal. Here, he, he put him in a total state of silence. 
So Zechariah emerges. This has been a long time. The people are busy. They're waiting for evening prayers. They're waiting for the incense offering. They're all checking their watches, like, what is up with this guy? And he comes out, and it's quickly apparent that something uh, phenomenal, something supernatural has happened. And Zechariah is doing the best he can to communicate. But then he just takes his, his place in line, and the priest at evening prayer after the uh, incense offering would stand on the temple porch and typically give the great blessing over the people from Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. I don't know what Zechariah is thinking at that moment. He can't hear them. He can't speak. He knows what they're saying as he sees their lips move because he's been part of this for a long time. He knows the blessings deep in his heart. I think it's possible, even though he's probably dumbfounded and bewildered a bit, that he began to crack a smile. That he began to realize this great promise that God will make his face shine on us and be gracious to us and turn his face towards us and give us peace is coming true in his midst. He goes home, uh, wherever home was, and, and, and Elizabeth is waiting, and, and, and she, the promise becomes true. Like, uh, her, she has a grace-filled tubby, to use that great line. And her response is the exact opposite of her husband's. She says, the Lord has done this for me. God has shown me favor and taken away my shame. Uh, this is the first great reversal of many that will be coming. And the great reversal is this. A first century reader would have expected the godly male priest to be the one who believed and the woman to be the one who doubted. No offense, ladies, don't glare at me. I'm just telling you what the first century expectation would have been. Luke flips that dramatically. And Elizabeth is the one that believes. And we'll see next week, young Mary, poor Mary, the 13-year-old Mary possibly believes when the male priest doesn't. There's this great reversal happening, this shock. In 2015, Microsoft endeavored to build the quietest room in the world and succeeded. They endeavored to build a room uh, about the size of a nursery. It took them two years, and uh, they wanted to make it 99.99% noise-proof. I'm told that uh, you take the quietest room, bedroom, and it's 600 times quieter. The Guinness Book of the World Records has declared it the quietest room in the world. Uh, the, the scientists who created it joke that it's the room where sounds go to die. I'm told it's so quiet, I did a little deep diving on this, really interesting, that when you're in it and they close the door and seal it, that you can hear your heart pumping and the blood pumping through your veins. And this is really creepy. You can hear when you walk and move your bones grinding. Isn't that creepy? <laughs> I mean, I'm all for quiet spaces. That's, that's a little much. Here's what I want to put forth to us today as a community, as we launch into this new year, in a world that's noisier and noisier and noisier. Here's what I want to put forth from the life of, of Zechariah. In quiet stillness, we hear God. In quiet stillness, we hear God. That's what I want to go after at the tail end of this message today. I'm convinced Zechariah lived a really, really noisy life. There was full of interruptions. We know this from the life of a priest. He returned home, and as a priest, he would have been the leader in his community. He would have been uh, like the mayor. Uh, he would have been the spiritual leader. He would have been like the pastor. And he would have been the legal leader. He would have been like the lawyer. Can you imagine if your role in your town was pastor, mayor, lawyer? the line out your door each day of complaints. And on top of that, in small communities, people talked like they do now. What's going on with, 
Elizabeth and Zachariah, like, what did they do wrong? Why are they barren? That chatters everywhere. Just a noisy life filled with interruptions. And as much as his job was to hear God, he had lost the ability to hear God because his world was too noisy. There's muscles that atrophied. He, hadn't, he, he, he didn't have the space and the quiet stillness to hear God. So when ironically, he's finally alone and quiet in the holy place, probably one of the few times in his life he could hear God, he does hear God and he doesn't believe God because he has not been in the practice of hearing God. He hasn't given time and space into the daily rhythms of his life to hear God and believe God. He had lost that ability. Uh, and he didn't have the quiet stillness he needed to literally hear the God who whispers. So that when Gabriel came, he says, are you kidding me? We know as we fast forward in the, in the, in the story in Luke 1 that, uh, that we're told Elizabeth is in seclusion for five months. So they go back to the town. Zechariah can't really do his duties. He can't fulfill those things. He can't speak. He can't hear. So I picture them just kind of like most of us were during COVID, right? Just at home. It just, they go from like super busy, super noisy life to like the breaks, the full breaks. And in that time, Zechariah remembered. Zechariah recultivated the ability to hear God so that when John is born and the people come to him, and they say, Zechariah, like he has to be named after you. That's how we do it. He's in your priestly line. This is a great story. Zechariah asks for something to write on and he writes his name is John. And he's able to hear and speak again. During his time of quiet stillness, Zechariah redeveloped the ability to hear God. He also wrote songs and we have one of them. Uh, we have a song from Mary we'll look at next week, but here's Zechariah's song. This is what came from him being in months upon months upon months of quiet stillness. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hands of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the path of peace. How in the world did this man go from encountering an angel face to face in the holy place and not believing to writing that? Months of quiet stillness, months of no distractions and no noise to hear the voice of God. Also, his heart was changed. We're told that when, when, when Zechariah saw the angel, his first impulse was fear. That's the first impulse for a lot of us in life. But what does the song say? That because of Jesus, he will be enabled to serve God without fear. Not only did he hear God and believe, but he was transformed from the inside out. You may say, John, I feel like you're taking one little piece of this story and making too much of it, this quiet stillness thing. Okay. Well, let me, let, me, let me just share with you that the quiet stillness is not just a random footnote in the story. It is an absolute essential biblical theme. The Shema, the most important passage, even today for Jewish people, 
In Jesus' day, they would pray in the morning and night. Faithful Jews do that today. It comes from Deuteronomy 6.4. The first word of the Shema is Shema, which means hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. One of the most important commands in the Hebrew Scriptures is to hear and listen. So hard to do that in a noisy world. 1 Samuel 3, young Samuel, his mom gives him uh, to, to priesthood, and he's there, and Eli the high priest, and three times in Samuel, 1 Samuel 3, he gets up thinking Eli's calling him, and he's like, it's the middle of the night, boy, go back to bed, I'm not calling you. And then the third time, Eli realizes what's happening, you know, it's that God's speaking to young Samuel, and he gives him this incredible prayer. He says, go back, and if you hear him speak again, just say this, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. The prophet Elijah, running for his life, scared for his life, holed up in a cave. He thinks God's going to speak to him in the fire. He didn't. In the earthquake, he didn't. In the wind, he didn't. And God spoke to him in a whisper. God whispers, God's not going to compete against the noise in my life and your life. Jesus is one of Jesus' favorite sayings was, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Jesus practiced this. Can you imagine how busy and noisy Jesus's life was? Once his ministry starting, thousands of people clamoring around him, the disciples always bickering and talking and people wanting to be healed and distractions and noise. And yet we see this in Luke 5, 15 and 16. We'll get to this story. Yet the news about him spread all the more. So the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Paul to the church of Thessalonica Make it your ambition to live a quiet life. The prophet Isaiah proclaims that quietness and trust is our strength. The prophet Habakkuk says the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. It's not a footnote. It's not a minor deal. The, the, the pursuit of quiet stillness as a regular rhythm in our life is absolutely essential if we want to hear God. And we so desperately need to hear God. Amen. My, one of the most remarkable people I've had the privilege of meeting is my, is my friend Dieter Zander. Dieter, I first encountered Dieter at a massive conference of thousands of people in Chicago uh, back in, oh man, early 2000s. I was a young pastor and uh, I was prone to be swayed by the cool, popular, hip other pastors and Dieter was certainly one of those. I remember the moment he came on stage to lead worship without a sound, he sat down at the piano and it was like the Holy Spirit like descended on the group. I was like, who is this man? And I began to follow him, and he led this uh, massive ministry of 20-somethings, thousands would come, and he was this incredibly gifted worship leader and communicator and writer. He went on off to the, out to the West Coast to lead a massive church. It was kind of like if you wanted like, someone to hold up as like the poster child of like, really cool, hip Christianity, it was Dieter. Anything Dieter touched turned to gold. And as a young guy, I was like, oh, if I could be anybody, I'd want to be Dieter, which I know now is foolishness, but I was a young guy. I kind of lost track of him, and there's a reason for that. I, I came across a story a few years later that startled me and shook me and continues to shake me deeply, to be honest. In 2008, uh, I think February, uh, Dieter uh, had a massive stroke in the middle of the night. And uh, he went into six days of coma. And when he came out of it, he says uh, he, ha he has what doctors call aphasia. And aphasia is when you're totally yourself in your head. You're still creative. You're still all the things that you were, but you can't get words out. You can't communicate. He said it was like being in solitary confinement in his own head. He had lost the ability of, of, the, right, of the right side of his body. Uh, so his magnificent piano player, he'd never be able to do that again. And he said he was just laying in this bed. 
cut off from the world. And then he said he, he at the deepest parts of desperation, uh, he remembered uh, that great Psalm from Psalm 4610, be still and know that I'm God. And he said, despite all the challenges, he had this deep, profound sense of God's presence with him that has never left him. He worked really, really hard over months, over years. He regained uh, you know, a, a good bit of his ability to walk and to function. To this day, he really struggles to talk. Like you can see as you're talking with him, you gotta be patient because he's got the word. He wants to say it. It doesn't always come out, right? But he's worked hard to get where he's at. He worked to a point where his, his first job back was a volunteer school crossing guard because he said he could do that and he wanted to do something to help. And then he landed a job at Trader Joe's where his job was to show up at 4 a.m. and break down all the boxes and there would be spoils of food left over that he would then uh, get over to Salvation Army. Uh, he had been stripped of everything that he knew, but he was in the process of it, discovering this deep, intimate relationship with God that he never had in his noisy world. This is what he writes. He said, my kingdom used to be a stage, a microphone, a piano, and an audience of thousands. My kingdom was a performance, a show, a sham, and then came the stroke. Now, five days a week, I arrive at Trader Joe's in the dark, hours before the sun cracks the horizon. I push my mop up and down the aisles, and I sweep my broom into corners to collect the debris from the day before. The store is quiet and empty. There is one audience in this kingdom, and that's okay, because I'm not performing. There's no stage deeter here, no Superman seeking to wow the masses with feats of spiritual strength. I'm just me, just Dieter. I had lunch with Dieter. He lives up in Vancouver uh, a while ago. And um, yeah, he was explaining the loss that he's had, but also the deep gain in going from a very noisy, busy world to a very quiet world. Uh, he taught himself to shoot photography because he could do that. And he's incredibly gifted. And then he taught himself to paint. And we walked over to his studio and he showed me some of the stuff that he was working on. And it's just incredible. And he said, John, he said, all those years of the stages and the noise and the people, he said, that whole time I, I worked for God. But he said, now, John, I'm God's friend. And he kind of got teary. And I got teary. Uh, and that's why he calls his stroke, and this is incredible, a stroke of grace. Now, I think this quiet stillness is absolutely essential in our lives because if we don't hear God, what are we doing? What are we doing? And I, I hope it doesn't take an angel coming down and depriving me of the ability to hear and speak for that to happen. I hope it doesn't take a stroke of grace uh, for that to happen. I don't think it has to. I think it takes the radical commitment to say, I'm gonna be the type of person that's gonna step out of a noisy world on a regular basis and give my creator and my redeemer space to not fight the noise and to speak to my heart. And I wanna challenge you and give you something that I do in my life to begin to practice. We're at that time of the year where everybody's doing New Year's resolutions. I'm not advocating for that. They fail to, to a colossal extent. Just step into this practice as much as you're able. Uh, I want it for myself. I want it for our community. So it's called Centering Prayer. And Centering Prayer is not new age. It's not meditation. It's not yoga. Just chill on all that stuff. Centering Prayer has been practiced for 1,600 years by followers of Jesus. And Centering Prayer is simply, as part of our prayer life, giving quiet stillness so that God can speak. Most of our prayer life is us confessing our sins. I spend a lot of time doing that, asking God for stuff or talking to God. I would advocate much of our prayer life, more of our prayer life should be listening to God, the love that we need to hear from our Father. 
and to create space. So centering prayer is just a practice to do that. Uh, so I, what I do is I, I go into my office and I wait for a time of day where there's not going to be barking dogs and God bless the children, I love them, but they're at school. This and that. I find a quiet space. And then I light a candle. I love candles. Um, and one of the reasons is I think the, the, the life of a candle flame reminds me tangibly that there's this powerful presence of the Holy Spirit in my midst, this God that shaped the heavens and the earth that so loves me and wants to speak to me. So I light the candle and then I get in a very comfortable position. And then I, I oftentimes pray that prayer, Samuel's prayer, Lord, speak for your servant is listening. And then I breathe, I get a cadence of my breath because breath is the, is the word for spirit. And I get a cadence of my breath, I get comfortable. And then people who are do centering prayer say, find a sacred word. Uh, I, I've been using beloved recently because I sometimes struggle that God loves me and that you know, he just, he's enamored with me. And so I, I, that's been my sacred word of late. Sometimes I'll use the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus have mercy on me. Maybe it's a word that comes to you from your scripture readings that the Holy Spirit's bringing to mind, but you have a sacred word and you breathe out and you're just saying the word. And here's what'll happen. You'll get distracted. You'll start thinking about what's coming. That's okay. Use that sacred word to recenter you and get back in the cadence of the breath and get back into stillness. You may fall asleep. That's okay. Because sleep is a gift from the Lord. But if you do that regularly, go to bed earlier. I'm just like, just free advice that I'm trying to give you. But just given space, I try to do 15 to 20 minutes. That's been good for me, but I've had to work up to that. So here's what I'm going to challenge you to do as your pastor. I hope that you'll listen is uh, try it for three times this week. I know that's a lot, but start with five minutes. Just five. You can do five minutes. I mean, come on. You can do five minutes. Start with five minutes. And then later in the week, try 10 minutes. And then this is going to be stressful. I know 15 minutes. Quiet. Now, go for the three S's I call them, um, solitude, silence, and stillness. Those of you who are a stay-at-home parents are like, you gotta be kidding me, John. <laughs> I get that. But I love what Jesus tells us how to pray. Do you remember this, this scene where he says, go into your closet? That's a word the first century audience would have known because uh, first century domiciles usually had 30 to 50 people living together, all generations. You think your life is stressful. People that worked for them, everybody, it's constant. But there was one private space in the entire house and that was called the closet. It was in the middle of most first century homes. Sometimes it, it was locked because that's where they kept the food. And Jesus like, go there to pray and lock everybody else out. So parents, you have that permission. Just lock your children out. Just lock them out. It could be the bathroom for you. Maybe that's the safest place to find that. But do your best to find uh, stillness and silence and solitude. Light the candle. Lord, your servant is listening. Breathe, find a sacred word, and listen to God. Because we can only hear God in quiet stillness. And I want that for me. I want that for you. Uh, God's speaking to us all the time. I think we miss God and we cannot afford to miss God. So we're gonna actually, uh, we're gonna practice it right now. You can do this, don't get nervous. Two minutes, how do you guys feel about that? Two minutes. So in just a second, I'm gonna say, uh, speak Lord, your servant is listening. And then we're gonna be quiet. I know I can't give you solitude, sorry, today, but I can give you stillness. And hopefully I can give you silence. And then Michelle and the team are going to come up and, uh, and lead us in some songs. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening.
Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We have some exciting upcoming events for students and children. Visit newhopepdx.org forward slash events to learn more. We'll see you next week.